You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. While we've been on air, the news has emerged, as you heard in the bulletin, that Peter Sutcliffe, the notorious serial killer known as the Yorkshire Ripper, has died in hospital in England. And Brady Sky News has more. And Enda, you you worked uh, at one stage as a reporter in Yorkshire. The shadow of Peter Sutcliffe, uh, it's hung over that whole northeast of England for a long, long time. It absolutely did on you. I worked in Yorkshire in the late 90s uh, in the Yorkshire Evening Post and sometimes as a young reporter you'd be sent down to the library archives and you have no idea how much was written about this investigation at the time. I mean, the first murder happened in late 1975 and he kept murdering women for five years and in the end he was arrested in a street in Sheffield after a huge manhunt that went on for years. I mean, it it was an extraordinary investigation, hampered, of course, by hoaxers who were pretending to be him, and the sheer volume of information, you know, 30,000 statements, a quarter of a million names, millions and millions of car registration plates that had been spotted in various different locations, and crucially, not one single computer. I mean, I know this is in a different era, but it was all done manually on an index card system and that allowed Sutcliffe to slip through the net and to keep murdering innocent women. I mean, just appalling. He was convicted in 1981 of 13 murders and 7 attempted murders. He was given 20 life sentences and then in 2010 it was changed to a whole life tariff, meaning that he would absolutely die in prison. And what has happened is he had a heart attack a couple of weeks ago and was taken to hospital. They returned him to the prison in Durham and in the last few days he has contracted COVID. Um, He was taken back to the hospital, refused treatment and he died in the early hours of this morning. He had 13 women victims, seven others survived the attacks. They were teenagers, shop workers, sex workers, clerical workers. Attitudes to women at the time, they didn't help uh, in terms of the police investigation, did they? Uh, No, they didn't. Um, Sutcliffe was a married man. He got married in 1974. He was absolutely obsessed with sex workers. And uh, for a long time, the police investigation discounted attacks on women who were not involved in sex work. And the police made huge numbers of mistakes. You know, there was a lot of misogyny, very, very um, strange attitudes at the time. And even filtered into the uh, prosecution in the early 1980s with the prosecutor uh, actually on record in court saying that uh, his words, the prosecutor said some of the victims, many of the victims were sex workers. The unfortunate thing about this case is that many were not. Um, the sad thing about the case, you mean appalling words, and that did hinder the investigation in many, many ways. It was a flawed investigation, and he roamed the streets of West Yorkshire, the northeast of England, Manchester, for five years. Um, and oh, it's extraordinary that he was arrested nine times uh, before they realised that he was their man. And Brady, Sky News, thank you. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden gets down to work today. He will call in a group of scientists and experts to advise him on how to deal with the deteriorating coronavirus pandemic in his country. The number of cases is heading for 10 million, with almost 240,000 deaths. 
Mr Biden gathers his experts in the knowledge that the Oval Office incumbent has still not recognised his win and is continuing his threat to take a legal challenge to the election result all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, I've been discussing this, plus a range of other issues, including US corporate tax, with leading US Congressman Brendan Boyle, who was re-elected in Philadelphia last week. First, did he expect a smooth transition of power or was he worried about President Trump's legal threats? I do think that it's quite clear uh, that most people recognize now that that President-elect Biden is, in fact, President-elect, that he has won this election. His popular vote margin only continues to grow, both in the close states that were just called as well as overall nationally. Um, The fact that you saw former uh, Republican President George W. Bush send out a statement on Sunday morning congratulating him and calling him president-elect is just further uh, proof of the fact that people are now recognizing the reality that, that Joe Biden has won this race. I would also point out there is nothing in law or in the Constitution that requires the loser of the election to concede. It's by tradition and by practice. Donald Trump can can go on for the next two months denying the reality. That won't change it, however. President-elect Biden, he has so many priorities. There will certainly be no honeymoon period for him at all. In terms of the pandemic, which is consuming everyone really around the world, and in particular in the United States, what do you expect the Biden administration will do differently from Donald Trump's? Well, first, it's quite clear that Joe Biden will listen to the experts He won't be going out uh, trashing people like Dr. Fauci. We won't have months and months in which the president of the United States doubted whether or not masks uh, were something that that you should be wearing. So just something as basic as that, having a president who listens to experts, who follows the medical consensus, uh, that will be a positive in and of itself. Combined with the fact, and this has probably been my second biggest frustration, that eight months into this, we still have no national testing and tracing program. Uh, That is something that that Biden as a candidate talked about a lot, and I very much wish he were taking over uh, as soon as possible, because the sooner we in this country implement that, the sooner we'll finally have this pandemic under control. And of course, the economy is the big sufferer here behind, obviously, the human cost of the virus. And on the economy, which is suffering so much, specifically on tax policy, President Trump and President Obama uh, repeatedly named Ireland as a country to which so many US companies had located because of Irish tax rates. And their policy, Trump and Obama, was to, to bring those companies back home. And Donald Trump cut the corporate tax rate to 21 percent. Will Joe Biden cut it even more? No, I can't imagine any scenario in which our corporate tax rate would drop below 20 percent. In fact, President Biden on the campaign trail has talked about that being too low and instead raising it back to somewhere in the middle of what it used to be, which was a 35 percent nominal rate to the current rate now, which is which is 21. So um, Biden as a candidate talked about a a rate that's closer to 28 percent. Um, I do think, though, that uh, the fact the Senate likely will remain Republican will make it far more difficult to to, uh, get into law the sort of fundamental change to the corporate tax rate that he had been proposing as a candidate. I think what is more immediate uh, as opposed to tax reform is further stimulus into the economy 
and to help people who are suffering uh, from the economic fallout of COVID. But further attempts to to raise the the corporation tax rate, that won't entice those companies which are in Ireland to come back to the United States, will it? No, that in and of itself uh, certainly would not. But, you know, something that I think the the entire world should get together and, and do better in terms of cooperation on is tax avoidance, regardless of what a country's rate may be, whether it's 12.5% or 21%, we do have these challenges of multinational corporations just gaming the system and getting away without paying any tax or paying tax that is too low than what they should owe. And, and this is something that, in my view, requires an international solution. And advisors to Donald Trump have described Ireland as a tax haven. Would you go that far? Well, I, when it comes to all things Irish, I guess I have a little bit of a bias as uh, I'm the only member of Congress with, with an Irish-born parent. Obviously, all four of my grandparents are, are Irish-born, and still it's where the majority of my family is. So you, you won't see me bashing Ireland uh, any time soon, regardless of, of the subject. And, you know, I, I do think the, the perception some push that the only reason why there are uh, corporations and a lot of jobs in Ireland saying that it's because of the low, low tax rate, that's really unfair. The reality is Ireland has a literacy rate that is higher than the United States and the UK. It has a very talented workforce. It is also a natural bridge between the United States and Europe. So yes, the low tax rate helps Ireland, but it has a lot more advantages going for it than just that. And speaking of the UK, um, in terms of any trade deal with that country, we know that you and others, including President-elect Biden, have already said that if peace on this island is threatened, there will be no trade deal. Any discussions on a trade agreement that the British government may already have had with the Trump administration? When the Biden administration comes into being in the new year, will those discussions start from scratch again? Yes, that's correct. Uh, You know, I was very happy when, as a uh, candidate just uh, about a month ago, Joe Biden, in the middle of the heat of the presidential campaign, took time out to tweet and issue a statement on specifically this issue. The new president has the same position that I have, that Speaker Pelosi has, and a significant number of us on Capitol Hill, that we simply have no interest in a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement if the UK in any way violates the law or the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. And are these talks a priority for the Biden administration? Well, you know, look, the UK is an important US ally. Um, that will, will always be the case. But the reality is it is a market of 60 million people. Compare that to China with 1.3 billion. Or the European Union, even without the UK, is some 450 million. So I, the reality is that, that not many constituents or voters ever really talk about a US-UK trade deal. It's not something that, that you would objectively describe as a major priority. So they're not first in line to do a great free trade deal, as Boris Johnson said in 2017. No, I mean, it just wouldn't make any sense. Uh, again, uh, in terms of the overall uh, size of our economic activity. And I say that not in any way to disparage the UK. It's, it's an important ally, as I mentioned. But the reality is that there are other um, bigger trading relationships that we have. One would presume you would prioritize those that, that are the more significant ones. I've seen speculation, Congressman, that you may be asked to join the Biden administration. Have you yet? That would be a, a huge honor. 
<laughs> it, I, I agree. It would be a huge honor. You know, uh, just a few days ago, I was reelected to a full new term in Congress, my, my fourth. Uh, so I, I deeply appreciate that. I'm not actively looking for a new job, having just been reelected this past week. But, you know, as someone who supported Joe Biden from literally his first uh, day as a, as a candidate 18 months ago, I'll do whatever I can to make sure this administration is successful. And you'd have to come with him to Ireland on his first visit as president. <laughs> I agree with that. I, I will certainly be uh, pushing for that invite. Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle talking to us. Over recent months, the number of sophisticated online scams has increased. Customers of banks, on post, delivery companies and even utility providers are being hit. In some cases, people are robbed of thousands of euro and it's a stressful and worrying experience. Our consumer affairs correspondent Fran McNulty joins us now. Fran, Bank of Ireland are targeting the issue this week. Why? Well, Gavin, I suppose principally because it's a busy time for online shopping and the bank itself was hit massively back in April when its customers started ringing Liveline about a pretty sophisticated smishing scam. Now, smishing is when criminals send you a text message or an email. It's an attempt to get your banking details. When they get those details, they then steal money from your account. Hundreds of people were hit in that scam earlier this year and the bank came in for sustained criticism for how it handled the issue. But it's an ongoing problem and everyday scams are popping up and even the most savvy of us are being caught out. One such person is Andra Sakra. He himself says he's cautious by his very nature, but one Saturday night recently he was hit. In the middle of playing a video game I got a, a message saying that someone is trying to do a... Um, a transaction on your account. If you want to review the transaction, click this link. I kind of thought initially that might be something behind it, but since the message which I got was from a, from the official number, which I normally get uh, messages from the bank, I've said it like, well, that sounds genuine. So then what I did, I ob obviously I accessed the link. It brought me to a, which seems to be an official a web page of the bank. Um, I know a little bit of what you need to check to make sure it's a, it's a safe page and I saw the locker was closed you know, on the top page. So what happened was I thought, oh, that's, that's genuine. So what happened is at, at that stage I already kind of, I, now looking backwards, it was obviously I got, <laughs> I got trapped in. So what happened, I just follow whatever they told me to do there without checking properly the messages which came from the bank and then I got you, you think it's not going to happen to you? That's what I thought. I'm a, I'm a very cautious guy. I'm, always, I'm a guy. I'm always checking things. I'm always um, I'm very doubtful, doubtful about things, and I'm checking them. But I got caught like within two minutes. Fran, this is widespread, and it can end up costing people. It can, Gavin, but it's so stressful for people as well. There's a mental and an emotional torture to it, not just a financial one. Now, in Andre's case, it cost him €1,700. Euro. He had that amount of money stolen from his account, but he did get it back from his bank pretty quickly. And bank of Ireland has had probably one of the most high-profile instances of smishing in the last year or so, as we said earlier, and the bank is trying to raise more awareness of it today. But, Gavin, it's not just Bank of Ireland. We're talking about delivery companies on post, the national lot, and they all look very convincing. Now, Gavin Kelly heads up retail banking with Bank of Ireland and he's been telling us more about the scale of the problem. 
This is a very serious problem and it's wider than just banking. We're seeing this happen in, in all walks of life, whether it's through utility companies um, and, and, and it's just as we become more online in our lives for us to see that opportunity. So, for example, in our research, over 50% of our customers have been targeted in some shape or form across their online lives with one of these attempts or messages. Now, our customers are being vigilant and it is important to say that shopping online and online banking is very, very safe. But we're all very busy in our lives, we're all more online, so we do see from time to time where customers do click through to these. So this, we're launching a national awareness campaign in the run-up to Christmas to, to advise customers, to give them simple tips around what to look for and to, to watch out for and to be a little bit more vigilant as they're you know, enjoying the run into Christmas and making sure that um, they stay safe online um, and that they can enjoy the online shopping experience or the online banking experience. The advice today from Bank of Ireland is the same as it is for all banks and all utility companies or delivery companies. Be aware and know that there is some information that will never be requested via text message or email. Here's Gavin Kelly again. If you get a text message from your bank and, the, and it says to click on and to give personal information, that is a fraudulent text message. We do not look for um, personal information. We do not look for your 365 PIN number or your one-time activation codes. And that is really important from Bank of Ireland, but also applies wider across the industry. So our message is very simple. If you see these, if you're in doubt, let us know, contact us, and uh, we will then take it up from there. But do not click on these messages if you get them and, uh, or these emails. Fran, you were talking about the mental impact of falling victim to these scams. What do people say? A lot of people, Gavin, say if any of our listeners have had the experience, and I hope they haven't, of their home being broken into, a lot of people describe it as that, of that feeling of violation. And Andre speaks openly, openly about this. It, it is a huge financial stress, but it's much more than that for some people. feel very bad, I have to say. I don't, I don't want anyone to experience a feeling like that, regardless if it's 100 euros or 1,700 euros. It's just the feeling that you got scammed. And the, the fact that someone is kind of taking advantage of you. And to be honest, it was one of the worst feelings which I have. The feeling is like the, when, the, when the sky is coming down to your head. <laughs> the pressure, you know. It's like I felt like the pressure like, of a, like the sky is coming down to my... And put pressure on my weight, on my body. That's the way I felt. Right. It was one of the worst feelings... <laughs> because it's it's uh, and it's nothing the, the problem is being saturday night it's nothing you can do about it um, um, just just apart from ringing obviously the the bank for them tell them what was what was wrong andre sakari speaking to our consumer affairs correspondent fran mcnulty there about the experience of being scammed through a smishing operation An unexpected war has erupted in Ethiopia that could threaten the stability not only of the country but of that region. A week ago, the country's Prime Minister and Nobel Peace Prize winner Abiy Ahmed launched military operations in the country's northern area. Hundreds have been killed and this conflict is now threatening to turn into a civil war. The tensions in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region have been building for months. I've been speaking to William Davison. He's a journalist based in Addis Ababa and a senior analyst with the International Crisis Group to find out why these tensions have spilled over into violence now. Well, the immediate cause of the conflict um, is um, the federal government's allegation um, that forces um, belonging to Tigray, um, the Tigray leadership, Tigray region's leadership, attacked a military base. Um, more broadly, um, they accuse the uh, Tigray um, government of taking over 
um, violently a section of the Ethiopian federal military station in Tigray. But this is just the latest and by far the most alarming part of a long-running political dispute, which essentially flared up in in, in 2018 or, or began in earnest in 2018, um, and that turned into a constitutional electoral dispute this year. This relates to um, the delayed election um, and the decision of the federal government to extend all um, regional and federal the, the federal government and all regional government's terms in Ethiopia. And more recently, William, how has this been building up? The leadership in Tigray, um, which had been having deteriorating relations with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government um, since he took power in 2018, and they lost considerable amounts of power. They said that this ruling to delay elections and extend the government terms beyond their constitutional limits was unacceptable and unconstitutional. Their response was to autonomously run their own regional election for their own regional state council. The federal government said that regional governments have no right to run their own elections. Um, This went against federal rulings and that the subsequently elected Tigray government was unconstitutional. When the federal government's original term expired in early October, Tigray's government said that the federal government had no authority um, in Tigray or in Ethiopia. So this was the political build-up and the constitutional dispute uh, that led to the outbreak of conflict. There was also sort of military manoeuvring, Um, and many other elements to this, but those are the core aspects um, of the dispute. We're hearing reports uh, of hundreds being killed and and a real fear now uh, that this conflict, these tensions could turn into an all-out civil war. Uh, What is the information you're getting from this area? How difficult is it to get information from Tigray now? It's very difficult to get information from Tigray because there has been a telecommunications blackout across all of the region, other than occasional, presumably satellite internet connections in the capital, since the conflict broke out last Wednesday. However, we do know that the fighting is concentrated in West Tigray. Um, The federal forces entered Tigray from Amhara region in the south, um, and there is active fighting um, ongoing there. The purpose of that federal focus appears to be to shut off Um, Tigray's main wartime supply route um, through western Tigray into eastern Sudan and up to Port Sudan. So that is the focus of the fighting. And indeed, um, although the details are not clear, it does appear that there has been heavy casualties, uh, fatalities already, um, and also civilians um, fleeing the fighting into Sudan. The other main component um, so far um, has been a federal jets uh, bombarding predominantly military installations, but there's also reports of uh, urban areas being hit. There is no doubt um, that this is a absolutely major conflict um, between obviously the well-armed federal government, but also a well-armed regional government, which has a strong security apparatus of its own, in addition to these federal military um, elements that it has taken over. It cannot be described as an all-out civil war, I guess, because it is limited to one part of Ethiopia. Um, but there is no doubt that this is a very, very severe conflict. At the moment, there is no prospect of negotiation. The federal government has every intention to restore the integrity of the armed forces and restore constitutional order as they see it. And the TPLF, the Tigray government, 
is absolutely determined to fight this. So it promises to be absolutely devastating for the region and its people, the Tigray region and its people, and it could spread, um, it could escalate and, and spread further afield as well. And I appreciate you say information is difficult to ascertain from the region at the moment, but uh, are there reports of uh, people fleeing the region? Are refugees trying to escape the area? Could there be a threat of a, a, a rising humanitarian crisis here? There is a very serious threat of a humanitarian crisis. The fighting in West Tigray has already led civilians, including yesterday in fairly large numbers, um, to flee from a town called Humera or near a town called Humera. That's on the point where Ethiopia, Eritrea and Sudan meet and there was a federal military incursion from the north. So there are civilians fleeing. The UN has actually estimated that this could cause the displacement of something like 9 million people. Uh, Tigray's population is 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 around uh, thought to be around 6 million. That was William Davison speaking to me from Addis Ababa. Now, as we heard on yesterday's programme, travellers to Ireland face fewer restrictions under the EU traffic light system after the 29th of the month, even from red regions. Uh, Passengers who test negative for COVID using a PCR test uh, five days after arriving here uh, wouldn't have to restrict their movements then, which begs the question, what difference does that make to all our loved ones far away coming home for Christmas? That's the big question we're all wondering about. And Kian McCormack has been talking to Irish people wondering about that very same question living in Spain, Italy, Britain and France. My dad, uh, every Christmas he asks me and my sister to either play or sing Silent Night. It's fabulous. Christmas morning, we go to Mass. My mom and my sister play in the choir. I sit with my my dad and my other sister and listen to the lovely music at Mass. Paris-based M.O. Sullivan wants to experience these family traditions this Christmas. I have never spent a Christmas away from home and I was hoping this year would be no different. Have you booked your flight? I haven't, no. I'm waiting for hopefully the 1st of December to see the the restrictions. M.O. Sullivan welcomes the new COVID-19 testing rules for air passengers. It's a great addition. I would certainly be taking advantage of that. You know, obviously the price is such a negative factor, but I, I suppose you can put a price on the quality time you get when you get home. Emma is a member of the Paris Gales GAA Club. And what she's just been talking about there is a hot topic in its WhatsApp group. Shane Harrison is the club's spokesperson. A little bit of confusion about the the traffic lights system. If the test will be done at the airport, do we have to check into a clinic or a hospital? There's still quite a lot of clarity that's needed. In Marbella in Spain, the treasurer of Costa Gales, Oshin Macillacotta, is returning home to County Waterford in December. The thing is, we had a baby there in um, in June. None of the family have yet uh, have met the baby yet, so um, we haven't had a chance to go home at all. But we are booked to go. Oshin has some concerns. Our biggest concern uh, is the situation changing while we're in Ireland and us being restricted from perhaps travelling back. It will be costly if we have to pay for it ourselves. Not necessarily something I'm particularly happy about. 
However, would I rather pay that money than restrict my movements for 14 days? A lot of that depends on how much they're charging. Covering the cost of a COVID-19 test is something London-based Beth Keeley is happy to do. I would think that it's worth it to be able to spend the Christmas with my family. The 26-year-old's preference is to get back home to Castle Dermot in County Kildare for the festive period. Of course, it's it's Christmas. I, I've never done Christmas away from home before. My family would be devastated. Beth says the new testing rules are helpful, especially when it comes to taking time off work. You know, you barely get leave as it is for Christmas and you're looking at two weeks quarantine, you know. So I think if that changes with this kind of new testing scheme, that will make a massive difference to people. Gary Leonard is chairman of Milan GAA in Italy. He's on lockdown with his fiance and four-month-old baby girl. We're all kind of a bit more negative about it this time. Everyone's wondering how long now this is going to continue for. Despite the efforts to open up air travel, Gary Leonard won't be travelling home to Tempo in County Fermanagh this Christmas. We've kind of discussed myself and Elisa that, you know, with Ada, four months old, um, you know, to travel and do all the testing and everything else, should something crop up, to be like in that flux of traveling and not being home and potentially being in Ireland and, you know, potentially then get a, you know, it, it's a realistic thing that you could test positive in Ireland as a, you know, when you're there. And just for us, it's too much perhaps of a risk to go home and have all that with the child, with work and everything else. That's Gary Leonard, chairman of Milan GAA in Italy, ending that report by Keen McCormack. David Rock is chief executive of RockDoc. That's a private healthcare company that's opening COVID-19 testing centres in Cork and Shannon airports from today. It also runs a testing centre in Ashburn in County Meath. Uh, David, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. No problem, sir. Thank you. Good morning. I'll cut to the chase, given that it was a question raised by several of the people uh, that Keen spoke to there. How much will the tests be? So we um, are providing molecular tests, so uh, both LAMP and PCR. So our LAMP test, our basic LAMP is 129 and our standard is uh, 149. So we also offer express tests. So if you need the results back quite urgently, i.e. within a few hours, we can do that at 199. And how will, how will it work? If you're flying out of Ireland, you'd need to come to you a few days beforehand, isn't that right? Yes, so if uh, you're, you are flying out, it's uh, 72 hours, within 72-hour window is what's asked to present to the centre, so there's time to have the results back for your flight if you're going for the PCR aspect. But it's not just for travelling outside of the country, there's obviously travelling obviously inside the country, so if you need to go and see a sick relative or um, a loved one, then the, the test is required for before, then we can, we can provide that service too. What happens if you test positive? So if it's a detected result, um, the customer portal that um, tracks your progress all the way through the swabbing, that will show up as detected. We'll also give you a call straight before the, it's updated so you can we can hold your hand through the process and say to you, OK, it's a detected result and we'll, we'll talk the way through it. After that, one about a few hours later, just for time to digest it, one of our doctors or nurses or healthcare professional staff will call to um, talk you through what you need to do and the self-isolation and um, where you've been and that sort of stuff. Once they have all that information, then um, it'll be referred on to the public health team within the HSE and the local GP as well. Are you expecting to be busy? 
And unfortunately, we are. We're we're hoping that uh, part of this will will open the country again slightly for the, the key workers that still need to travel and indeed the, the more domestic side. So for businesses that um, need to stay open during this pandemic to, to main, maintain manufacturing and keep their work, workforce safe. And just to bear in mind, the current government advice is still that people should only travel overseas if it's essential. David Rock, Chief Executive of Rock Talk, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. Now, nine months after the COVID-19 pandemic officially began and almost a year after the first confirmed cases, finally, we may, may have a breakthrough. The world was told yesterday of a potentially crucial development in the creation of a COVID-19 vaccine. Pfizer and BioNTech have said their vaccine is, to date, more than 90% effective. If this level of protection holds, it could put this new vaccine on a par with some childhood vaccines. I've been speaking to Dr David Nabar special envoy on COVID-19 with the World Health Organization and I asked him if this vaccine with all the health warnings if it could be the game changer the world has been waiting for. We need several vaccines I don't think just one vaccine will be enough and uh, we're watching a number going through what we call phase three clinical trials this is one that's in the middle of the trials and we've had advanced notice that it's particularly effective. This is great, great news, but I'm looking forward to more coming through. And I expect during next year, we will get some of these vaccines being licensed and then they can be made available. I'd just like to to say two things. First of all, uh, we, we can't change what we've been trying to learn to do during the past few months, just overnight, because there's a vaccine. We've got to go on treating the virus with respect and adjusting our lives so that it's less easily able to be transmitted. Uh, We've also got to go on building up defences in our communities, just like what you're doing in Ireland, uh, particularly in the context of the current uh, uh, movement restrictions. But then we add the vaccine in, it becomes part of the uh, collection of of, uh, interventions, and it will make a huge difference. I just don't like the word game changer. It's what we've been expecting to come. It's one of the developments and it has to be incorporated into our response processes uh, in in the due course of time. Uh, We must not give up our work, our direction we're on at the moment. And with all the checks and the balances that you are counselling here, what can you tell us about uh, what is being claimed for this vaccine so far? Pfizer and BioNTech talking about a more than 90% rate of effectiveness. Yes. So what they do in the test is they give the vaccine to people and they have a, a some kind of placebo, which means it's it's like the vaccine, but it doesn't have the vaccine's properties. And they give that to people as well. And then they compare how much disease comes up in the, uh, the group that were given the vaccine and the group that were given the placebo. And then you see a difference. But when you're actually doing the studies, you don't know which is which. It's done what we call blind, and that reduces bias in the investigation. But there suddenly appeared a pattern in the results that were obtained with this uh, trial. And so the investigators thought, well, we better see what's going on. And they, they broke the code and saw that, yes, this vaccine seems to be particularly effective in reducing symptoms of COVID. 
and suddenly they thought, wow, we've got a really exciting uh, discovery on our hands. They decided to tell the world because it is so amazing, but they also said to the world, there is still work to be done to get further details of efficacy and also the safety work has got to be done. So we've been given advance warning of something brilliant, but at the same time, we've got to be prepared for several weeks, perhaps even months more work before the vaccine or a vaccine like it can become available for people. One of our leading immunologists, uh, Luke O'Neill in Trinity College, says uh, that a vaccine of this level of effectiveness is unheard of. Uh, It would be a remarkable result if it holds up. Why are we still awaiting more data? Why have they not published uh, further data at this stage? Well, uh, they've, they've given us advance information that suggests that Uh, In the people who were vaccinated, uh, only uh, 10% of the risk of um, COVID appeared to be present. I mean, it is quite incredible to get that level of efficacy in a vaccine. It's a vaccine using new technology. And uh, that's one of the very exciting things about it, that that it is a new approach. Uh, One disadvantage that probably people have heard, and that is that it has to be kept super cold, minus 80 degrees centigrade and that does make using it uh, or using a vaccine like it in hot climates quite difficult. Uh, We were involved in a vaccine that needed to be kept this cold for Ebola in 2015 and it was quite difficult. So we've got something super exciting but it's going to need quite a lot of work to get it out and available to people and there's still some safety testing to happen. And have we any idea how long the protection might last? No, that's another question. And, and you don't really know how long protection lasts until you've been able to study vaccinated people over time. So given that we're so early on right now in dealing with COVID, it's a bit early to say whether this, this vaccine gives protection for weeks or months or even years. And we won't know the answer until we've had a chance to follow people who've been vaccinated over time. So duration of protection, not known. And Dr. Nabarro, is there another concern that this new strain of COVID-19 discovered in mink in Denmark, that if that becomes dominant, could it undo a lot of the work uh, that has taken place so far with the development of vaccines? One of the things about working with COVID is you've always always got surprises almost every day. And this discovery that there seemed to have been a mutation associated with the virus going into mink Uh, really is of concern. Uh, As as of now, I am not hearing that the mutation that is reported, I want to say reported, to have happened in uh, Danish uh, mink operations uh, is necessarily one that's going to cause trouble when it comes to a vaccine. So I'm afraid I can't answer your question, but like many, I am quite uh, careful now into look into what actually the mutation might represent that is being reported from the mink farms in Denmark. And continuing to be careful with all of the warnings that you have given us, when might a vaccine, if this uh, uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine holds up, why, when might we see it uh, in, in general distribution? You might have had a little groan. I hate being asked when Uh, something might be available for general distribution because it's so easy to be wrong. I am going to say next year. I'm not going to say this year. I'm not one of these people who believes that lots of people will be able to be vaccinated before the year end. I think by next year, 
there will be the information available for the national authorities to decide whether this vaccine or indeed another vaccine can be licensed for use in, in your country. So please don't assume that we're going to have widespread availability this year. There may be some vaccine available for uh, people who are particularly exposed um, quite quickly, but I think general availability for the population 2021. And while we are all hopeful, uh, are you cautioning uh, for a quiet and uh, a quiet Christmas not too celebratory? Oh, I want everybody to celebrate Christmas. You know, we've got through this year. It's been a tumultuous year. We'll have got through it by the end of December. All sorts of exciting things happening politically, all sorts of exciting things happening in our own lives. Let's celebrate. Just while we celebrate, let's try not to make it possible for this virus to get around. And the more I look at and listen to what people are doing, the more I realise you can have fun, you can enjoy life, you can get on with your business and at the same time, do all the things that we ask you to do. Physical distancing, mask wearing, hygiene, isolating when you're sick and paying special attention to the people most at risk. Dr. David Nabarro of the World Health Organization speaking to me a little earlier this morning. Nearly 60 years ago, in 1961, Irish soldiers serving on a UN peacekeeping mission in Congo were attacked at Shadowville. And for five days, Ireland's 35th Battalion A Company held off overwhelming forces with no fatalities until they were forced, for lack of support, to surrender. The subsequent treatment of those soldiers has been a running sore for many years and last night Defence Minister Simon Coveney announced a review group to finally redress some of that, a review group on military honours for Ireland's Jadoville soldiers. The Chief of Staff has proposed the establishment of an independent group of external experts to consider the entire case and evidence, uh, including new evidence, uh, if any is available. Uh, my understanding is that on that board will be ex-military uh, officers, a historian, uh, an academic that understands the context and what happened uh, in some detail, so that we will have genuine and independent expertise examining this case. I know there's huge emotion linked to the Jadaville case, and rightly so. This was something for us all, but in particular those linked to the Defence Forces to be very proud of. And the men that served there are responsible for extraordinary service to peacekeeping uh, and to Ireland. Extraordinary service to peacekeeping and to Ireland. That was Defence Minister Simon Coveney in the Shannon yesterday evening. And for more on this, I'm joined by Declan Power, former member of the Defence Forces and author of The Siege of Shadowville, the Irish Army's Forgotten Battle. But even more welcome to the programme, actually, is Noel Carey. And Noel, good morning to you. Good morning, are you? Nice to hear you. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. You're, um, if you, I'm sure you won't mind me telling the nation, you're 84 years old now, but you were only 25, the youngest of the 10 Irish Army officers at Shadowville. How clear are those memories still to you? Well, yeah, they, just at the moment, just after Liam, but I suppose uh, a couple of days ago, it, it's all coming back now. It's very, very clear and has always been clear just exactly what happened and how we were so badly treated on arrival back home. 
And for younger listeners who won't be familiar with the story, Noel, what hurt most in the treatment when you did come back home? Well, Anya, if I could first say that I'm absolutely thrilled uh, and delighted at the decision by the Minister for Defence, uh, Mr Simon Coveney, uh, to set up this uh, review board. And uh, I've always believed that uh, any awards, military awards, should be the function of the the the, uh, the army through the chief of staff uh, and purely on merit. And only if I could just say that I hope uh, that we, the veterans, will get a chance to make our story and give our story to the board in time when the time comes. This was totally denied to us when we came back in December 1961 to... Um, a situation where nobody knew exactly what had happened in this country thousands of miles away. Uh, communications were appalling at that stage, naturally enough. The, the, we didn't have the, the fax machines and the, the computers and so on that we have now. And uh, we were just uh, left there. Uh, it, the efforts of the Defence Forces at that stage was to um, airbrush us out of the history of the, of the, the, the army. And only for the uh, efforts of uh, people like uh, the late um, Commandant Liam Donnelly, uh, John Gorman, and some uh, veterans in the Western Command, and uh, uh, Leo Quinlan, Commandant Liam Quinlan, the son of Pat Quinlan, and ultimately Declan Powers broke the siege of Jadotville. The story would never have been told. And finally, uh, with Netflix taking up the uh, Declan's book, and publishing uh, and printing and, and producing uh, Jadaville, the film. Uh, the, the story went to an international audience, and from that, the company, A Company, in 2017, were granted the uh, Unbound Jadaville, which is the Jadaville Medal for Bravery in Defence. And Declan Power, if I could bring you in there, Noel Carey described the impact of your book and the subsequent Netflix documentary. Uh, we do have the Jadotville medal, but can you outline what this announcement from Defence Minister Coveney last night about the highest military honours would mean for the individual soldiers uh, who went through that ordeal? Well, Anya, good morning to you, and good morning to you too, Noel. Uh, good, good morning, Declan. <clears throat> uh, this is really the last link in, in a chain that uh, can now finally be dealt with, thanks to Minister Coveney's uh, sense in, in, in looking at this, in, in taking it out of the hands of purely the, the army or the department. Because the army were constrained uh, for many years in trying to find a solution to, to the issue about the, the valour decorations, because they're constrained by regulations, <clears throat> they're constrained by the situation as it stands. Uh, I, I, the current Chief of Staff, Ar Admiral Mark Mellet, uh, was extremely interested in trying to, uh, to find a resolution to this, but he could only work with the tools he had. What's happening now, by taking this <clears throat> into a, an, an outside group to uh, look at this and to take things into context, not just military regulations on the award of medals, but looking at things I would suggest in the political context of the times, the lack of awareness the state had about what our troops 
had uh, become engaged in, the social circumstances of the time that uh, Noel alluded to there about when they came home. People didn't understand what the troops had been through. The, the narrative wasn't set straight. <clears throat> so uh, an outside study group can take all of this into account and provide a framework which ultimately requires a political decision. It was always going to require a political mm -hmm. decision. It's a delicate affair. Um, one of the problems was a, a lack of documentary uh, evidence because some files had disappeared or been destroyed. And people, and indeed I might add, Noel is uh, too modest to mention it, he himself uh, was one of the soldiers recommended for a Distinguished Service Medal. Uh, for uh, holding a position by himself when he ordered his men to return to safer positions uh, during a bombardment. And he stayed behind to man a machine gun uh, as the, the, the ranking officer. Uh, there, are, there are other examples of that. Uh, I can think of my, one of my own townsmen who I grew up knowing as a rugby coach, Tom Gunn, who had been recommended for a Distinguished Service Medal. I, you know, these are things that uh, I did not discover until I was digging into the research of this. The problem is... Uh, how to go about uh, retro-examining uh, and perhaps even awarding uh, mm -hmm. when medals board ruled on these matters. But I think what we have to take into account, obviously there's a, there's a job of work to be done there in looking at the, the frameworks, but it was a different Ireland then. And I think we've all, we all realise that now. On the other side of the equation, uh, much has been said about the Department of Defence and the Army uh, in, in their role as gatekeepers of the reputation of the Defence Forces. And so the importance here is striking the right tone between seeing that uh, justice can be done with regards to restoring um, uh, valour and reputation and uh, ensuring that uh, decorations uh, are still, still retain their status uh, as highly uh, uh, sought after and attained uh, decorations. Because right. this is thing that sometimes I think civilians don't often understand. You can't just uh, hand out a, an award like a military medal for gallantry or a distinguished service medal. There is a process that must be gone through. But on a positive note, a number of citations involved eyewitness reports at the time. And this is perhaps a yardstick by which uh, an outside group can use that as a, a tentative first step in studying the uh, the situation with regards to some sort of a pronouncement. And Noel, as Declan said there, you, you were too modest to mention yourself that you had been recommended uh, by Pat Quinlan for a merit, merit award. Uh, uh, what would it mean to you if following this review you were to get that medal? Well, I suppose, Anya, um, like any dis any distinction, it would be tremendous uh, personally and for my family and for my friends and for all those who supported us during the, the time that we were more or less in limbo. Um, but I would also say it would be tremendous for all of the uh, members of A Company because all of us, and particularly in the question of... Uh, Commandant Pat Quinlan, it should not be forgotten that only Pat, for Pat Quinlan, we, I probably wouldn't, have been, wouldn't be here today. And uh, actually, only for his foresight and his bravery in having us dig in and be astute enough to realize, even though he was getting no information from his, our headquarters, and he was left really in the lurch when uh, the second relief column did not 
uh, Crasta Lafira Bridge, having secured a ceasefire with the Catangese, which was, of course, violated as soon as they realised that we had no support, no ammunition, no food and no water. But Pat Quinlan's bravery, not even just there on uh, later on, uh, as pr- pr- when we were kept prisoners, only his intervention prevented very serious attacks on individual soldiers. Pat Quinlan was an absolute hero, and he is, should be primarily uh, the person who would get the highest honour from this review board. Thank you for remembering him uh, this morning. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. It's been a privilege, gentlemen. Thank you both very much indeed. Movie news. Oh, yes. Wild Wild Mountain Time, a romantic drama set in Ireland, starring Christopher Walken, Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan. A pair of star-crossed lovers get caught up in their family's land dispute. There's nothing more dangerous than an Irish woman in love. Here's a bit of it. had a dream since you were a child and you couldn't let it go so you put this gate between us has your dream made you happy or miserable you kissed him it was he that kissed me that's what's got him worked up i don't understand you people why do you make everything so hard you just seem to accept these crazy things i don't like a fight well, who does half of ireland just not me if my true love he were gone deadly. Um, our arts media and possibly for one day only crime correspondent Sinead Crowley is with us. Top of the morning to you Sinead. Tell us more about Wild Mountain Time. It's a grand soft day here Gavin. Delighted to be talking to you this morning. I have never seen such a reaction to a trailer. Now we have to point out we have only seen the trailer right? So maybe the it's trailer is misleading. <laughs> maybe this is going to be the greatest depiction of emotion ever since normal people and we will have to come back and take it all back. But judging by the trailer this is going to be a classic of a very different type. Um, just again by the trailer we have star-crossed lovers, we have a row over land, we have a visiting yank, we have a woman who goes to New York and bursts into tears because apparently she's never sat inside a theatre before we've a woman wearing a shawl like they're all there and that's just in a short trailer and that's before we even go near the accents which includes Christopher Walken playing the kind of the field character and trying to figure out who inherits this famous piece of land outside Mullingar which is apparently where it's all set so the trailer just dropped last night people have been waiting for this film because we knew it was coming and we knew who was starring in it and there was shall I say a certain level of expectation about it but I think the trailer last night really outdid those expectations and people are now dying to see it. Absolutely. Can't wait. Step aside, Tom Cruise. When will it be on and where can we see it? It'll be streaming, we're told, around about the 11th of December. Yeah, last night even on social media, Tom Cruise was trending, Darby O'Gill was trending, Far and Away was trending. I'm also thinking of a movie called Leap Year by Amy Adams. And I'm thinking of that because when that comes on television, uh, people tend to watch it collectively and go on social media. And it's incredibly entertaining to share their thoughts on it. So what I'm hoping, Leap Year is about a woman who comes to Ireland to propose to a man and has to walk from Dingle to Dublin for absolutely no reason. And what 
what I'm hoping about this movie is that we can all actually watch it collectively and give our, you know, give our opinions together because it has been a fairly quiet year here and there hasn't been much to laugh about and hopefully this movie will give us lots to chuckle about. Even the reaction from, for example, the Irish Embassy in the US pointing yes. out this morning that, well, you know, we are a beautiful people, so Jamie Dornan and Emily Blunt are representing that. We've had Ryanair tweeting, we've had Dublin Airport tweeting, we've even had the Leprechaun Museum tweeting that, you know, this movie is probably going a bit too far. So I think there's actually huge expectation for it and I think it's going to be great fun to watch it collectively. There you go. Thumbs up. Five stars from Sinead Crowley. (laughs) You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.